Why is one of the four just men being treated as a prisoner amongst his fellow conspirators? Edgar Wallace, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. You can also purchase our app or shop for t-shirts and other merchandise. Links can be found in the notes to today's episode. And if you have the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. We'd also like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. The Hunchback of Notre Dame is coming along. I've had a couple hard deadlines and it's just tricky to sneak in a few hours to record during the week. I'll give it a shot over the weekend. I'm going to release this in two parts, as a part one and part two, since it runs around 20 hours. So keep an eye open for part one. Please make sure your member status is current, as I will be sending the completed audiobooks out to all current financial supporting members. Now for our personal moment. We've had a bit of a paradigm shift in our house. Over the past week or two, our two boys have started college and Goldie has started an intensive performing arts academy on top of her regular schoolwork. It's like they all transitioned into a new adult phase of their lives. I took the two boys to the convocation meeting at Utah Valley University last week and it was really amazing. I've never done anything like that before. It was really quite an amazing kind of experience, and it was very welcoming. You really got a feeling that they welcomed you into like their their kind of culture of education kind of thing. I don't. I've never had that kind of college experience, but I'm so proud of those boys, and I'm excited to see where Goldie is going with this uh, performing arts thing. It's so interesting to see them as they grow up and start doing older and more developed and advanced things about how how competent they are and how much fun it is to watch them just grow. I'm just really excited to see where they're going to go from here. Anyway, that's our personal moment for the week. It got kind of personal there. I hope that's okay. But uh, anyway, there you go. And now, The Four Just Men, Part 2 of 4, by Edgar Wallace. Chapter 4. Preparations When an advertisement appeared in the newspaper proprietor announcing that there was, for sale, an established Zinco engraver's business with a splendid new plant and a stock of chemicals, everybody in the printing world said, that's Etherington's. To the uninitiated, a photo engraver's is a place of buzzing saws and lead shavings and noisy lathes and big, bright arc lamps. To the initiated, a photo engraver's 
is a place where works of art are reproduced by photography on zinc plates, and consequently used for printing purposes. To the very knowing people of the printing world, Etherington's was the worst of its kind, producing the least presentable of pictures at a price slightly above the average. Etherington's had been in the market, by order of the trustees, for three months, but partly owing to its remoteness from Fleet Street, it was in Carnaby Street, and partly to the dilapidated condition of the machinery, which shows that even an official receiver has no moral sense when he starts advertising, there had been no bids. Manfred, who interviewed the trustee in Carey Street, learned that the business could be either leased or purchased, that immediate possession in either circumstances was to be had, that there were premises at the top of the house which had served as a dwelling place to generations of caretakers, and that a banker's reference was all that was necessary in the way of guarantee. Rather a crank, said the trustee at a meeting of creditors, thinks that he is going to make a fortune turning out photograviers of Murillo at a price within reach of the inartistic. He tells me that he is forming a small company to carry on the business, and that so soon as it is formed he will buy the plant outright. And sure enough, that very day, Thomas Brown, merchant, Arthur W. Knight, gentleman, James Selkirk, artist, Andrew Cohen, financial agent, and James Leach, artist, wrote to the registrar of joint stock companies asking to be formed into a company, limited by shares, with the object of carrying on business as photo engravers, with which object they had severally subscribed for the shares set against their names. In parentheses, Manfred was a great artist. And five days before the second reading of the Aliens Extradition Act, the company had entered into occupation of their new premises in preparation to starting a business. Years ago, when I first came to London, said Manfred, I learned the easiest way to conceal one's identity was to disguise oneself as a public enemy. There's a wealth of respectability behind the word limited, and the pomp and circumstance of a company directorship diverts suspicion, even as it attracts attention. Gonzales printed a neat notice to the effect that the Fine Arts Reproduction Syndicate would commence business on October 1st, and a further neat label that no hands were wanted, and a further terse announcement that travellers and others could only be seen by appointment, and that all letters must be addressed to the manager. It was a plain-fronted shop, with a deep basement, crowded with the dilapidated plant left by the liquidated engraver. The ground floor had been used as offices, and neglected furniture and grimy files predominated. There were pigeonholes filled with old plates, pigeonholes filled with dusty invoices, pigeonholes in which all the debris that was accumulated in an office by a clerk with salary in arrear was deposited. The first floor had been a workshop, the second had been a store, and the third and most interesting floor of all was that on which were the huge cameras and the powerful arc lamps that were so necessary an adjunct to the business. In the rear of the house on this floor were the three small rooms that had served the purpose of the bygone caretaker. In one of these, 
two days after the occupation, sat the four men of Cadiz. Autumn had come early in the year. A cold driving rain was falling outside, and the fire that burnt in the Georgian grate gave the chamber an air of comfort. This room alone had been cleared of litter. The best furniture of the establishment had been introduced, and on the ink-stained writing-table that filled the center of the apartment stood the remains of a fairly luxurious lunch. Gonzales was reading a small red book, and it may be remarked that he wore gold-rimmed spectacles. Poircard was sketching at a corner of the table, and Manfred was smoking a long, thin cigar and studying a manufacturing chemist's price list. Terry, or as some prefer to call him Semon, alone did nothing, sitting a brooding heap before the fire, twiddling his fingers and staring absently at the leaping little flames in the grate. Conversation was carried on spasmodically, as between men whose minds were occupied by different thoughts. Terry concentrated the attentions of the three by speaking to the point. Turning from his study of the fire with a sudden impulse, he asked, How much longer am I to be kept here? Poicar looked up from his drawing and remarked, That is the third time he has asked today. Speak Spanish, cried Terry passionately. I am tired of this new language. I cannot understand it any more than I can understand you. You will wait till it is finished, said Manfred, in the staccato patois of Andalusia. We have told you that. Terry growled and turned his face to the grate. I am tired of this life, he said sullenly. I want to walk about without a guard. I want to go back to Jerez, where I was a free man. I am sorry I came away. So am I, said Manfred quietly. Not very sorry, though. I hope for your sake I shall not be. Who are you? burst forth Terry, after a momentary silence. What are you? Why do you wish to kill? Are you anarchists? What money do you make out of this? I want to know. Neither Poicard, nor Gonzales, nor Manfred showed any resentment at the peremptory demand of their recruit. Gonzales's clean-shaven, sharp-pointed face twitched with pleasurable excitement, and his cold blue eyes narrowed. Perfect. Perfect, he murmured, watching the other man's face. Pointed nose, small forehead, and articulorum se ipsos torquentium sonus, gemitus mugistic parum explanatis. The physiognomist might have continued Seneca's picture of the angry man, but Terry sprang to his feet and glowered at the three. Who are you? he asked slowly. How do I know that you are not to get money for this? I want to know why you keep me a prisoner, why you will not let me see the newspapers, why you never allow me to walk alone in the street or speak to someone who knows my language. You are not from Spain. Nor you. Nor you. Your Spanish is... Yes, but you are not of the country, I know. You want me to kill, but you will not say how. Manfred rose and laid his hand on the other's shoulder. Signor, he said, and there was nothing but kindness in his eyes. 
Restrain your impatience, I beg of you. I again assure you that we do not kill for gain. These two gentlemen whom you see have each fortunes exceeding six million pesetas, and I am even richer. We kill, and we will kill, because we are each sufferers through acts of injustice, for which the law gave us no remedy. If, if, he hesitated, still keeping his grey eyes fixed unflinchingly on the Spaniard. Then he resumed gently. If we kill you, it will be the first act of the kind. Terry was on his feet, white and snarling, with his back to the wall, a wolf at bay, looking from one to the other with fierce suspicion. Me? Me? he breathed. Kill me? Neither of the three men moved, save Manfred, who dropped his outstretched hand to his side. Yes, you. He nodded as he spoke. It would be new work for us, for we have never slain except for justice, and to kill you would be an unjust thing. Poikar looked at Terry pityingly. That is why we chose you, said Poikar because there was always a fear of betrayal, and we thought it had better be you. Understand, resumed Manfred calmly, that not a hair of your head will be harmed if you are faithful, that you will receive a reward that will enable you to live. Remember the girl at Jerez. Terry sat down again with a shrug of indifference, but his hands were trembling as he struck a match to light his cigarette. We will give you more freedom. You shall go out every day. In a few days we shall all return to Spain. They called you the silent man in the prison at Granada. We shall believe that you will remain so. After this the conversation became Greek to the Spaniard, for the men spoke in English. He gives very little trouble, said Gonzales. Now that we have dressed him like an Englishman, he does not attract attention. He doesn't like shaving every day, but it is necessary, and luckily he is fair. I do not allow him to speak in the streets, and this tries his temper somewhat. Manfred turned the talk into a more serious channel. I shall send two more warnings, and one of those must be delivered in his very stronghold. He is a brave man. What of Garcia? asked Poicard. Manfred laughed. I saw him on Sunday night. A fine old man, fiery and oratorical. I sat at the back of a little hall whilst he pleaded eloquently in French for the rights of man. He was a Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a Mirabeau, a broad-viewed bright, and the audience was mostly composed of Cockney youths, who had come that they might boast they had stood in the temple of anarchism. Boicard tapped the table impatiently. Why is it, Georges, that an element of bathos comes into all these things? Manfred laughed. You remember Anderson? When we had gagged him and bound him to the chair, and had told him why he had to die, when there were only the pleading eyes of the condemned, in the half-dark room with a flickering lamp. And you and Leon 
and poor Clarice, masked and silent, and I had just sentenced him to death. You remember how there crept into the room the scent of frying onions from the kitchen below? I do remember, said Leon, the case of the regicide. Poicard made a motion of agreement. You mean the corsets, he said, and the two nodded and laughed. There will always be bathos, said Manfred. Poor Garcia with the nation's destinies in his hand. An amusement for shop girls, tragedy and the scent of onions. A rapier thrust and the whalebone of corsets. It is inseparable. And all the time Terry smoked cigarettes, looking into the fire with his head on his hands. Going back to this matter we have on our hands, said Gonzales, I suppose that there is nothing more to be done till the day? Nothing. And after? There are our fine art reproductions. And after? persisted Poicard. There is a case in Holland, Hermannus Vanderbilt to wit. But it will be simple, and there will be no necessity to warn. Poicard's face was grave. I am glad you have suggested Vanderbilt. He should have been dealt with before. Hook of Holland or Flushing? If we have time, the hook, by all means. And Terry? I will see to him, said Gonzales easily. We will go... <laughs> Overland, to Jerez, where the girl is, he added laughingly. The object of their discussion finished his tenth cigarette and sat up in his chair with a grunt. I forgot to tell you, Leon went on, that today, when we were taking our exercise walk, Terry was considerably interested in the posters he saw everywhere and was particularly curious to know why so many people were reading them. I had to find a lie on the spur of the minute, and I hate lying. Gonzales was perfectly sincere. I invented a story about racing or lotteries, or something of that sort, and he was satisfied. Terry had caught his name in spite of its anglicized pronunciation, and looked inquiry. We will leave you to amuse our friend said Manfred, rising. Poicard and I have a few experiments to make. The two left the room, traversed the narrow passage, and paused before a small door at the end. A larger door on the right, padlocked and barred, led to the studio. Drawing a small key from his pocket, Manfred opened the door, and stepping into the room, switched on a light that shone dimly through a dust-covered bulb. There had been some attempt at restoring order from the chaos. Two shelves had been cleared of rubbish, and on these stood rows of bright little files, each bearing a number. A rough table had been pushed against the wall beneath the shelves, and on the green baize with which the table was covered was a litter of graduated measures, test tubes, condensers, delicate scales, and two queer-shaped glass machines, not unlike gas generators. Poicard pulled a chair to the table and gingerly lifted a metal cup that stood in a dish of water. Manfred, looking over his shoulder, remarked on the consistency of the liquid that filled half the vessel, and Poicard bent his head, acknowledging the remark as though it were a compliment. Yes, he said, satisfied. 
It is a complete success. The formula is right. Some day we may want to use this. He replaced the cup in its bath, and reaching beneath the table, produced from a pail a handful of ice dust, with which he carefully surrounded the receptacle. I regard that as the multum in parvo of explosives, he said, and took down a small file from the shelf, lifted the stopper with the crook of his little finger, and poured a few drops of a whitish liquid into the metal cup. That neutralizes the elements, said Poicard, and gave a sigh of relief. I am not a nervous man, but the present is the first countable moment I have had for two days. It makes an abominable smell, said Manfred, with his handkerchief to his nose. A thin smoke was rising from the cup. I never noticed those things, Poicard replied, dipping a thin glass rod into the mess. He lifted the rod and watched reddish drops dripping from the end. That's all right, he said. And is it an explosive no more? asked Manfred. It is as harmless as a cup of chocolate. Poicard wiped the rod on a rag, replaced the vial, and turned to his companion. And now? he asked. Manfred made no answer, but unlocked an old-fashioned safe that stood in the corner of the room. From this, he removed a box of polished wood. He opened the box and disclosed the contents. If Terry is the good workman he says he is, here is the bait that shall lure Sir Philip Raymond to his death, he said. Poicard looked. Very ingenious, was his only comment. Then, does Terry know, quite know, the stir it has created? Manfred closed the lid and replaced the box before he replied. Does Terry know that he is the fourth just man? He asked, then slowly. I think not, and it is as well as he does not know. A thousand pounds is roughly thirty-three thousand pesetas, and there is a free pardon, and the girl at Jerez, he added thoughtfully. A brilliant idea came to Smith the reporter as he carried it to the chief. Not bad said the editor, which meant that the idea was really very good. Not bad at all. It occurred to me, said the gratified reporter, that one or two of the four might be foreigners who don't understand a word of English. Quite so, said the chief. Thank you for the suggestion. I'll have it done tonight. Which dialogue accounts for the fact that the next morning the megaphone appeared with the police notice in French, Italian, German, and Spanish. Chapter 5 The Outrage at the Megaphone The editor of The Megaphone, returning from dinner, met the superchief on the stairs. The superchief, boyish of face, withdrew his mind from the mental contemplation of a new project. Megaphone House is the home of new projects, and inquired after the four just men. The excitement is keeping up, replied the editor. People are talking of nothing else but the coming debate on the extradition bill, and the government is taking every precaution against an attack upon Raymond. What is the feeling? The editor shrugged his shoulders. 
Nobody really believes that anything will happen in spite of the bomb. The Super Chief thought for a moment, and then quickly, What do you think? The editor laughed. I think the threat will never be fulfilled. For once, the four have struck against a snag. If they hadn't warned Raymond, they might have done something, but forewarned? Huh. We shall see, said the Super Chief, and went home. The editor wondered, as he climbed the stairs, how much longer the four would fill the contents bill of his newspaper, and rather hoped they would make their attempt, even though they met with a failure, which he regarded as inevitable. His room was locked and in darkness, and he fumbled in his pocket for the key, found it, turned the lock, opened the door, and entered. I wonder, he mused, reaching out his hand and pressing down the switch of the light. There was a blinding flash, a quick splutter of flame, and the room was in darkness again. Startled, he retreated to the corridor and called for a light. Send for the electrician, he roared. One of these damned fuses has gone. A lamp revealed the room to be filled with a pungent smoke. The electrician discovered that every globe had been carefully removed from its socket and placed on the table. From one of the brackets suspended a curly length of thin wire, which ended in a small black box, and it was from this that thick fumes were issuing. Open the windows, directed the editor, and a bucket of water having been brought, the little box was dropped carefully into it. Then it was that the editor discovered the letter, the greenish-gray letter that lay upon his desk. He took it up, turned it over, opened it, and noticed that the gum on the flap was still wet. Honored sir, ran the note. When you turned on your light this evening, you probably imagined for an instant that you were a victim of one of those outrages to which you are fond of referring. We owe you an apology for any annoyance we may have caused you. The removal of your lamp and the substitution of a plug, connecting a small charge of magnesium powder, is the cause of your discomfiture. We ask you to believe that it would have been as simple to have connected a charge of nitroglycerin and thus have made you your own executioner. We have arranged this as evidence of our inflexible intention to carry out our promise in respect of the Aliens' Extradition Act. There is no power on earth that can save Sir Philip Raymond from destruction, and we ask you, as the directing force of a great medium, to throw your weight into the scale in the cause of justice, to call upon your government to withdraw an unjust measure, and save not only the lives of many inoffensive persons who have found an asylum in your country, but also the life of a minister of the crown, whose only fault in our eyes is his zealousness in an unrighteous cause. Signed, The Four Just Men. Phew! whistled the editor, wiping his forehead and eyeing the sodden box, "'floating serenely at the top of the bucket. "'Anything wrong, sir?' asked the electrician daringly. "'Nothing,' was the sharp reply. "'Finish your work. Refix these globes and go.' "'The electrician, ill-satisfied and curious, "'looked at the floating box and the broken length of wire. "'Curious-looking thing, sir,' he said. "'If you ask me, 
I don't ask you anything. Finish your work, the great journalist interrupted. Beg pardon, I'm sure, said the apologetic artisan. Half an hour later, the editor of the megaphone sat discussing the situation with Welby. Welby, who was the greatest foreign editor in London, grinned amiably and drawled his astonishment. I have always believed that these chaps meant business, he said cheerfully, and what is more, I feel pretty certain that they will keep their promise. When I was in Genoa, Welby got much of his information firsthand. When I was in Genoa, or was it Sophia? I met a man who told me about the Trelovich affair. He was one of the men who assassinated the king of Servia, you remember. Well, one night he left his quarters to visit a theatre. The same night he was found dead in the public square with a sword thrust through his heart. There were two extraordinary things about it. The foreign editor ticked them off on his fingers. First, the general was a noted swordsman, and there was every evidence that he had not been killed in cold blood, but had been killed in a duel. The second was that he wore corsets, as many of these Germanized officers do, and one of his assailants had discovered the fact, probably by a sword thrust, and made him discard them. At any rate, when he was found, this frippery was discovered close by his body. Was it known at the time that it was the work of the four? asked the editor. Welby shook his head. Even I had never heard of them before, he said resentfully, then asked, What have you done about your little scare? I've seen the hall porters and the messengers and every man on duty at the time, but the coming and going of our mysterious friend, I don't suppose there was more than one, is unexplained. It really is a remarkable thing. Do you know, Welby, it gives me quite an uncanny feeling. The gum on the envelope was still wet. The letter must have been written on the premises and sealed down within a few seconds of my entering the room. Were the windows open? No. All three were shut and fastened, and it would have been impossible to enter the room that way. The detective who came to receive a report of the circumstances endorsed this opinion. The man who wrote this letter must have left your room not longer than a minute before you arrived, he concluded, and took charge of the letter. Being a young and enthusiastic detective, before finishing his investigations, he made a most minute search of the room, turning up carpets, tapping walls, inspecting cupboards, and taking laborious and unnecessary measurements with a foot rule. There are a lot of our chaps who sneer at detective stories, he explained to the amused editor, but I have read almost everything that has been written by Gaborio and Conan Doyle, and I believe in taking notice of little things. There wasn't any cigar ash or anything of that sort left behind, was there? he asked wistfully. I'm afraid not, said the editor gravely. Pity, said the detective, and wrapping up the infernal machine and its appurtenances, he took his departure. Afterwards, the editor informed Welby that the disciple of Holmes had spent half an hour with a magnifying glass examining the floor. He found half a sovereign that I lost weeks ago, so it's really an ill wind. All that evening, nobody but Welby and the chief knew what had happened in the editor's room. There was some rumor in the sub-editor's department that a small accident had occurred in the sanctum. "'Chafe busted a fuse in his room and got a devil of a fright,' said the man who attended to the shipping list. "'Dear me,' 
said the weather expert, looking up from his chart. Do you know something like that happened to me the other night? The chief had directed a few firm words to the detective before his departure. Only you and myself know anything about this occurrence, said the editor. So if it gets out, I shall know it comes from Scotland Yard. You may be sure nothing will come from us, was the detective's reply. We've got into too much hot water already. That's good, said the editor. And that's good sounded like a threat. So that Welby and the chief kept the matter a secret till half an hour before the paper went to press. This may seem to the layman an extraordinary circumstance, but experience has shown most men who control newspapers that news has an unlucky knack of leaking out before it appears in type. Wicked compositors, and even compositors can be wicked, have been known to screw up copies of important and exclusive news and throw them out of a convenient window so that they have fallen close to a patient man standing in the street below and have been immediately hurried off to the office of a rival paper and sold for more than their weight in gold. Such cases have been known. But at half-past eleven, the buzzing hive of Megaphone House began to hum, for then it was that the sub-editors learned for the first time of the outrage. There was a great story, yet another Megaphone scoop, headlined half down the page with the just four again. Outrage at the office of the megaphone. Devilish ingenuity. Another threatening letter. The four will keep their promise. Remarkable document. Will the police save Sir Philip Raymond? A very good story, said the chief complacently, reading the proofs. He was preparing to leave and was speaking to Welby by the door. Not bad, said the discriminating Welby. What I think. Hello. The last was addressed to a messenger who appeared with a stranger. Gentleman wants to speak to somebody, sir. A bit excited, so I brought him up. He's a foreigner, and I can't understand him, so I brought him to you. This to Welby. What do you want? asked the chief in French. The man shook his head and said a few words in a strange tongue. Ah, said Welby. Spanish. What do you wish? he said in that language. Is this the office of that paper? The man produced a grimy copy of the megaphone. Yes. Can I speak to the editor? The chief looked suspicious. I am the editor, he said. The man looked over his shoulder, then leant forward. I am one of the four just men, he said hesitatingly. Welby took a step towards him and scrutinized him closely. What is your name? he asked quickly. Miguel Terry of Jerez, replied the man. It was half past ten when, returning from a concert, the cab that bore Poicard and Manfred westward passed through Hanover Square and turned off to Oxford Street. You ask to see the editor, Manfred was explaining. They take you up to the offices. You explain your business to somebody. They are very sorry, but they cannot help you. They are very polite, but not to the extent of seeing you off the premises. So, wandering about, seeking your way out, you come to the editor's room, and, knowing that he is out, slip in, make your arrangements, walk out, locking the door after you if nobody is about, 
addressing a few farewell words to an imaginary occupant, if you are seen, and voila! Poircar bit the end of his cigar. Use for your envelope a gum that will not dry under an hour, and you heighten the mystery, he said quietly, and Manfred was amused. The envelope just fastened is an irresistible attraction to an English detective. The cab, speeding along Oxford Street, turned into Edgware Road, when Manfred put up his hand and pushed open the trap in the roof. "'We'll get down here,' he called, and the driver pulled up to the sidewalk. "'I thought you said Pembridge Gardens,' he remarked as Manfred paid him. "'So I did,' said Manfred. "'Good night.' They waited, chatting on the edge of the pavement, until the cab had disappeared from view, then turned back to the marble arch, crossed to Park Lane, walked down that plutocratic thoroughfare, and round into Piccadilly. Near the circus they found a restaurant, with a long bar and many small alcoves, where men sat around marble tables, drinking, smoking, and talking. In one of these, alone, sat Gonzales, smoking a long cigarette and wearing on his clean-shaven mobile face a look of meditative content. Neither of the men evinced the slightest sign of surprise at meeting him, yet Manfred's heart skipped a beat, and into the pallid cheeks of Poicard crept two bright red spots. They seated themselves, a waiter came and they gave their orders, and when he had gone, Manfred asked in a low tone, Where is Terry? Leon gave the slightest shrug. Terry has made his escape he answered calmly. For a minute, neither man spoke, and Leon continued. This morning, before you left, you gave him a bundle of newspapers? Manfred nodded. They were English newspapers, he said. Terry does not know a word of English. There were pictures in them. I gave them to amuse him. You gave him, among others, the megaphone? Yes, ha! Manfred remembered. The offer of a reward was in it, and the free pardon, printed in Spanish. Manfred was gazing into vacancy. I remember, he said slowly. I read it afterwards. It was very ingenious, remarked Poicard commendingly. I noticed that he was rather excited, but I accounted for this by the fact that we had told him last night of the method we intended adopting for the removal of Raymond and the part he was to play. Leon changed the topic to allow the waiter to serve the refreshments that had been ordered. It is preposterous, he went on without changing his key, that a horse on which so much money has been placed should not have been sent to England at least a month in advance. The idea of a bad channel crossing leading to the scratching of the favourite of a big race is unheard of, said Manfred severely. The waiter left them. We went for a walk this afternoon, resumed Leon, and were passing along Regent Street, he stopping every few seconds to look in the shops, when suddenly we had been staring at the window of a photographer's. I missed him. There were hundreds of people in the street, but no Terry. I have been seeking him ever since. 
Leon sipped his drink and looked at his watch. The other two men did nothing, said nothing. A careful observer might have noticed that both Manfred's and Poicard's hands strayed to the top button of their coats. Perhaps not so bad as that, smiled Gonzales. Manfred broke the silence of the two. I take all the blame, he commenced, but Poicard stopped him with a gesture. If there is any blame, I alone am blameless, he said with a short laugh. No, Georges, it is too late to talk of the blame. We underrated the cunning of Monsieur, the enterprise of the English newspapers, and... and... the girl at Therese, concluded Léon. Five minutes passed in silence, each man thinking rapidly. I have a car not far from here, said Léon at length. You have told me that you would be at this place by eleven o'clock. We have the NAFTA lunch at Bernamont Crouch. We could be in France by daybreak. Manfred looked at him. What do you think yourself? he asked. I stay and finish the work, said Léon. And I, said Poicard, quietly but decisively. Manfred called the waiter. Have you the last editions of the evening papers? The waiter thought he could get them and returned with two. Manfred scanned the pages carefully, then threw them aside. Nothing in these, he said. If Terry has gone to the police, we must hide and use some other method to that agreed upon, or we could strike now. After all, Terry has told us all we want to know, but that would be unfair to Raymond. Poicard finished his sentence in such a tone as summarily ended that possibility. He still has two days and must receive yet another and last warning. Then we must find Terry. It was Manfred who spoke, and he rose, followed by Poicard and Gonzales. If Terry has not gone to the police, where would he go? The tone of Leon's question suggested the answer. To the office of the newspaper that published the Spanish advertisement, was Manfred's reply, and instinctively the three men knew that this was the correct solution. Your motor car will be useful, said Manfred, and all three left the bar. In the editor's room, Terry faced the two journalists. Terry, repeated Welby, I do not know that name. Where do you come from? What is your address? I come from Jerez in Andalusia. "'From the wine farm of Sinor. "'Not that,' interrupted Welby. "'Where do you come from now? "'What part of London?' "'Terry raised his hands despairingly. "'How should I know? "'There are houses and streets and people, "'and it is in London, "'and I was to kill a man, a minister, "'because he had made a wicked law. "'They did not tell me. "'They who?' asked the editor eagerly. "'The other three. "'But their names?' Terry shot a suspicious glance at his questioner. "'There is a reward,' he said sullenly, "'and a pardon. "'I want these before I tell.' The editor stepped to his desk. "'If you are one of the four, you shall have your reward. "'You shall have some of it now.' He pressed a button, and a messenger came to the door. 
Go to the composing room and tell the printer not to allow his men to leave until I give orders. Below, in the basement, the machines were thundering as they flung out the first numbers of the morning news. Now, the editor turned to Terry, who had stood, uneasily shifting from foot to foot whilst the order was being given. Now, tell me all you know. Terry did not answer. His eyes were fixed on the floor. There is a reward and a pardon, he muttered doggedly. Hasten, cried Welby. You will receive your reward and the pardon also. Tell us, who are the four just men? Who are the other three? Where are they to be found? Here, said a clear voice behind him, and he turned as a stranger, closing the door as he entered, stood facing the three men, a stranger in evening dress, masked from brow to chin. There was a revolver in his hand that hung at his side. I am one, repeated the stranger calmly. There are two others waiting outside the building. How did you get here? What do you want? demanded the editor, and stretched his hand to an open drawer in his desk. Take your hand away. And the thin barrel of the revolver rose with a jerk. How I came here, your doorkeeper will explain when he recovers consciousness. Why I am here is because I wish to save my life, not an unreasonable wish. If Terry speaks, I may be a dead man. I am about to prevent him speaking. I have no quarrel with either of you, gentlemen, but if you hinder me, I shall kill you, he said simply. He spoke all the while in English, and Terry, with wide-stretched eyes and distended nostrils, shrank back against the wall, breathing quickly. You, said the masked man, turning to the terror-stricken informer and speaking in Spanish, would have betrayed your comrades. You would have thwarted a great purpose. Therefore it is just that you should die. He raised the revolver to the level of Terry's breast, and Terry fell on his knees, mouthing the prayer he could not articulate. By God, no! cried the editor and sprang forward. The revolver turned on him. Sir, said the unknown, and his voice sank almost to a whisper. For God's sake, do not force me to kill you. You shall not commit a cold-blooded murder, cried the editor, in a white heat of anger, and moved forward, but Welby held him back. What is the use? said Welby in an undertone. He means it. We can do nothing. You can do something, said the stranger, and his revolver dropped to his side. Before the editor could answer, there was a knock at the door. Say you are busy. And the revolver covered Terry, who was a whimpering huddled heap by the wall. Go away, shouted the editor. I am busy. The print is awaiting, said the voice of the messenger. Now, asked the chief, as the footsteps of the boy died away. What can we do? You can save this man's life. How? Give me your word of honor that you will allow us both to depart, and will neither raise an alarm nor leave this room for a quarter of an hour. The editor hesitated. How do I know that the murder you contemplate will not be committed as soon as you get clear? The other laughed under his mask. How do I know that as soon as I have left the room, you will not raise an alarm? I shall give you my word, sir, 
said the editor stiffly. And I mine, was the quiet response. And my word has never been broken. In the editor's mind a struggle was going on. Here in his hand was the greatest story of the century. Another minute, and he would have extracted from Terry the secret of the four. Even now a bold dash might save everything, and the printers were waiting. But the hand that held the revolver was the hand of a resolute man, and the chief yielded. I agree, but under protest, he said. I warn you that your arrest and punishment is inevitable. I regret, said the masked man with a slight bow, that I cannot agree with you. Nothing is inevitable save death. Come, Terry, he said, speaking in Spanish. On my word as a caballero, I will not harm you. Terry hesitated, then slunk forward with his head bowed and his eyes fixed on the floor. The masked man opened the door an inch, listened, and in the moment came the inspiration of the editor's life. Look here, he said quickly, the man giving place to the journalist. When you get home, will you write us an article about yourselves? You needn't give us any embarrassing particulars, you know. Something about your aspirations, your raison d'etre. Sir, said the masked man, and there was a note of admiration in his voice. I recognize in you... An artist. The article will be delivered tomorrow. And opening the door, the two men stepped into the darkened corridor. Chapter 6 The Clues Blood-red placards, horse newsboys, overwhelming headlines, and column after column of leaded type told the world next day how near the four had been to capture. Men in the train leant forward, their newspapers on their knees, and explained what they would have done had they been in the editor of the megaphone's position. People stopped talking about wars and famines and droughts and street accidents and parliaments and ordinary everyday murders and the German emperor in order to concentrate their minds upon the topic of the hour. Would the four just men carry out their promise and slay the Secretary for Foreign Affairs on the morrow. Nothing else was spoken about. Here was a murder threatened a month ago, and unless something unforeseen happened, to be committed tomorrow. No wonder that the London press devoted the greater part of its space to discussing the coming of Terry and his recapture. It is not so easy to understand, said the telegram. Why? having the miscreants in their hands, certain journalists connected with a sensational and halfpenny contemporary allowed them to go free and work their evil designs upon a great statesman whose unparalleled, we say if, for unfortunately in these days of cheap journalism every story emanating from the sanctum sanctorum of sensation-loving sheets is not to be accepted on its pretensions— so if, as it stated, these desperados really did visit the office of a contemporary last night. At noonday, Scotland Yard circulated broadcast a hastily printed sheet. One thousand pound reward. Wanted. On suspicion of being connected with a criminal organization known as the Four Just Men. Miguel Terry. Alias Semon. Alias Lechico. Late of Jerez, Spain a Spaniard speaking no English, height five feet eight inches, 
Eyes brown, hair black, slight black mustache, face broad, scars, white scar on cheek, old knife wound on body. Figure, thick set. The above reward will be paid to any person or persons who shall give such information as shall lead to the identification of the said Terry with the band known as the Four Just Men and his apprehension. From which may be gathered that, acting on the information furnished by the editor and his assistant at two o'clock in the morning, the direct Spanish cable had been kept busy. Important personages had been roused from their beds in Madrid, and the history of Terry as recorded in the Bureau had been reconstructed from pigeonhole records for the enlightenment of an energetic commissioner of police. Sir Philip Raymond, sitting, writing in his study at Portland Place, found a difficulty in keeping his mind upon the letter that lay before him. It was a letter addressed to his agent at Branfell, the huge estate over which he, in the years he was out of office, played squire. Neither wife nor chick nor child had Sir Philip. If by any chance these men succeed in carrying out their purpose, I have made ample provision not only for yourself, but for all who have rendered me faithful service, he wrote, from which may be gathered the tenor of his letter. During these past few weeks, Sir Philip's feelings towards the possible outcome of his action had undergone a change. The irritation of a constant espionage, friendly on the one hand, menacing on the other, had engendered so bitter a feeling of resentment that in this newer emotion all personal fear had been swallowed up. His mind was filled with one unswerving determination to carry through the measure he had in hand to thwart the four just men and to vindicate the integrity of a minister of the crown. It would be absurd, he wrote in the course of an article entitled Individuality in its Relation to the Public Service and which was published some months later in the Quarterly Review. It would be monstrous to suppose that incidental criticism from a wholly unauthoritative source should affect or in any way influence a member of the government in his conception of the legislation necessary for the millions of people entrusted to his care. He is the instrument, duly appointed, to put into tangible form the wishes and desires of those who naturally look to him not only to furnish means and methods for the betterment of their conditions— or the amelioration of irksome restrictions upon international commercial relations, but to find them protection from risks extraneous of purely commercial liabilities. In such a case, a minister of the Crown, with due appreciation of his responsibilities, ceases to exist as a man, and becomes merely an unhuman automaton. Sir Philip Raymond was a man with very few friends. He had none of the qualities that go to the making of a popular man. He was an honest man, a conscientious man, a strong man. He was the cold-blooded, cynical creature that a life devoid of love had left him. He had no enthusiasm, and inspired none. Satisfied that a certain procedure was less wrong than any other, he adopted it. Satisfied that a measure was for the immediate or ultimate good of his fellows— he carried that measure through to the bitter end. It may be said of him that he had no ambitions, only aims. He was the most dangerous man in the cabinet, which he dominated in his masterful way, for he knew not the meaning of the blessed word 
compromise. If he held views on any subject under the sun, those views were to be the views of his colleagues. Four times in the short history of the administration had rumored resignation of a cabinet minister filled the placards of the newspapers, and each time the minister whose resignation was ultimately recorded was the man whose views had clashed with the foreign secretary. In small things, as in great, he had his way. His official residence he absolutely refused to occupy, and number 44 Downing Street was converted into half office, half palace. Portland Place was his home, and from there he drove every morning, passing the horse guard's clock as it finished the last stroke of ten. A private telephone wire connected his study in Portland Place with the official residence, and but for this Sir Philip had cut himself adrift from the house in Downing Street, to occupy which had been the ambition of the great men of his party. Now, however, with the approach of the day on which every effort would be taxed, the police insisted upon his taking up his quarters in Downing Street. Here, they said, the task of protecting the minister would be simplified. Number 44 Downing Street they knew. The approaches could be better guarded, and moreover the drive, that dangerous drive, between Portland Place and the Foreign Office would be obviated. It took a considerable amount of pressure and pleading to induce Sir Philip to take even this step, and it was only when it was pointed out that the surveillance to which he was being subjected would not be so apparent to himself that he yielded. "'You don't like to find my men outside your door with your shaving water,' said Superintendent Falmouth bluntly. "'You objected to one of my men being in your bathroom when you went in the other morning,' and you complained about a plainclothes officer driving on your box. Well, Sir Philip, in Downing Street I promise that you shan't even see them. This clinched the argument. It was just before leaving Portland Place to take up his new quarters that he sat writing to his agent whilst the detective waited outside the door. The telephone at Sir Philip's elbow buzzed. He hated bells and the voice of his private secretary asked with some anxiety how long he would be. "'We have got sixty men on duty at forty-four, said the secretary, zealous and young, "'and today and tomorrow we shall—' And Sir Philip listened with growing impatience to the recital. "'I wonder you have not got an iron safe to lock me in,' he said petulantly, and closed the conversation. There was a knock at the door, and Falmouth put his head inside. "'I don't want to hurry you, sir,' he said. But, so the foreign secretary drove off to Downing Street in something remarkably like a temper, for he was not used to being hurried, or taken charge of, or ordered hither and thither. It irritated him further to see the now familiar cyclists on either side of the carriage, to recognize at every few yards an obvious policeman in mufti, admiring the view from the sidewalk. And when he came to Downing Street, he found it barred to all carriages but his own, and an enormous crowd of morbid sightseers gathered to cheer his ingress. He felt as if he had never felt before in his life, humiliated. He found his secretary waiting in his private office with the rough draft of the speech that was to introduce the second reading of the extradition bill. "'We are pretty sure to meet with a great deal of opposition,' informed the secretary, "'but Mainland has sent out three-line whips and expects to get a majority of thirty-six at the very least.' 
Raymond read over the notes and found them refreshing. They brought back the old feeling of security and importance. After all, he was a great minister of state. Of course, the threats were too absurd. The police were to blame for making so much fuss. And, of course, the press. Yes, that was it. A newspaper sensation. There was something buoyant, something almost genial in his air, when he turned with a half-smile to his secretary. Well, what about my unknown friends? What do the blackguards call themselves? The four just men? Even as he spoke, he was acting a part. He had not forgotten their title. It was with him day and night. The secretary hesitated. Between his chief and himself, the four just men had been a tabooed subject. They? Oh, we've heard nothing more than you have read, he said lamely. We know now who Terry is, but we can't place his three companions. The minister pursed his lips. They gave me till tomorrow night to recant, he said. You have heard from them again? The briefest of notes, said Sir Philip lightly. And otherwise? Sir Philip frowned. They will keep their promise, he said shortly, for the otherwise of his secretary had sent a coldness into his heart that he could not quite understand. In the top room in the workshop at Carnaby Street, Terry, subdued, sullen, fearful, sat facing the three. "'I want you to quite understand,' said Manfred, "'that we bear you no ill will for what you have done. "'I think, and Signor Poicard thinks, "'that Signor Gonzales did right to spare your life "'and bring you back to us.' "'Terry dropped his eyes before the half-quizzical smile of the speaker. "'Tomorrow night you will do as you agreed to do, "'if the necessity still exists. "'Then you will go.' "'He paused. "'Where?' demanded Terry in sudden rage. "'Where, in the name of heaven? "'I have told them my name.' They will know who I am. They will find that by writing to the police. Where am I to go? He sprang to his feet, glowering on the three men, his hands trembling with rage, his great frame shaking with the intensity of his anger. You betrayed yourself, said Manfred quietly. That is your punishment. But we will find a place for you, a new Spain, under other skies, and the girl at Jerez shall be there waiting for you. Terry looked from one to the other suspiciously. Were they laughing at him? There was no smile on their faces. Gonzales alone looked at him with keen, inquisitive eyes, as though he saw some hidden meaning in the speech. "'Will you swear by that?' asked Terry hoarsely. "'Will you swear that by the—' "'I promise that. If you wish it, I will swear it,' said Manfred. "'And now—' He went on, his voice changing. "'You know what is expected of you tomorrow night. "'What you have to do?' Terry nodded. "'There must be no hitch, no bungling. "'You and I and Poicard and Gonzales "'will kill this unjust man in a way that the world will never guess. "'Such an execution as shall appall mankind. "'A swift death, a sure death, a death that will creep through cracks, that will pass by the guards unnoticed. Why, 
There has never been such a thing done. Such... He stopped dead with flushed cheeks and kindling eyes and met the gaze of his two companions. Poicard, impassive, sphinx-like. Leon interested and analytic. Manfred's face went a duller red. I am sorry, he said almost humbly. For the moment I had forgotten the cause and the end in the strangeness of the means. He raised his hand deprecatingly. It is understandable, said Poicard gravely, and Leon pressed Manfred's arm. The three stood in embarrassed silence for a moment. Then Manfred laughed. To work, he said, and led the way to the improvised laboratory. Inside, Terry took off his coat. Here was his province, and for being the cowed dependent, he took charge of the party, directing them, instructing, commanding, until he had the men of whom, a few minutes before, he had stood in terror, running from studio to laboratory, from floor to floor. There was much to be done, much testing, much calculating, many little sums to be worked out on paper, for in the killing of Sir Philip Raymond, all the resources of modern science were to be pressed into the service of the four. "'I am going to survey the land,' said Manfred suddenly, and disappearing into the studio, returned with a pair of stepladders. These he straddled in the dark passage, and mounting quickly, pushed up the trap-door that led to the flat roof of the building. He pulled himself up carefully, crawled along the leaden surface, and raising himself cautiously, looked over the low parapet. He was in the center of a half-mile circle of uneven roofs. Beyond the circumference of his horizon, London loomed murkily through smoke and mist. Below was a busy street. He took a hasty survey of the roof with its chimney stacks, its unornamental telegraph pole, its leaden floor and rusty guttering, then, through a pair of field glasses, made a long, careful survey southward. He crawled slowly back to the trap-door, raised it, and let himself down very gingerly, till his feet touched the top of the ladder. Then he descended rapidly, closing the door after him. "'Well?' asked Terry, with something of triumph in his voice. "'I see you have labelled it,' said Manfred. "'It is better so, since we shall work in the dark,' said Terry. "'Did you see, then?' began Poicard. Manfred nodded. "'Very indistinctly.' One could see the House of Parliament dimly, and Downing Street is a jumble of roofs. Terry had turned to the work that was engaging his attention. Whatever was his trade, he was a deft workman. Somehow he felt that he must do his best for these men. He had been made forcibly aware of their superiority in the last days. He had now an ambition to assert his own skill, his individuality, and to earn commendation from these men— who had made him feel his littleness. Manfred and the others stood aside and watched him in silence. Leon, with a perplexed frown, kept his eyes fixed on the workman's face. For Leon Gonzalez, scientist, physiognomist, his translation of the Theologiae Physiognomia Humana of Lequitius is regarded today as the finest, was endeavoring to reconcile the criminal with the artisan. After a while, Terry finished. All is now ready, 
he said with a grin of satisfaction. Let me find your minister of state. Give me a minute's speech with him, and the next minute he dies. His face, repulsive in repose, was now demoniacal. He was like some great bull from his own country, made more terrible with the snuffle of blood in his nostrils. In strange contrast were the faces of his employers. Not a muscle of either face stirred. There was neither exultation nor remorse in their expressions, only a curious something that creeps into the set face of the judge as he pronounces the dread sentence of the law. Terry saw that something, and it froze him to his very marrow. He threw up his hands as if to ward them off. Stop! Stop! he shouted. Don't look like that! In the name of God, don't! Don't! He covered his face with shaking hands. Like what, Terry? asked Leon softly. Terry shook his head. I cannot say. Like the judge at Granada, when he says... When he says... Let the thing be done. If we look so, said Manfred harshly, it is because we are judges, and not alone judges, but executioners of our judgment. I thought you would have been pleased, whimpered Terry. You have done well, said Manfred gravely. Bueno, bueno, echoed the others. Pray God that we are successful, added Manfred solemnly, and Terry stared at this strange man in amazement. Superintendent Falmouth reported to the commissioner that afternoon that all arrangements were now complete for the protection of the threatened minister. I filled up 44 Downing Street, he said. There's practically a man in every room. I've got four of our best men on the roof, men in the basement, men in the kitchens. What about the servants? asked the commissioner. Sir Philip has brought up his own people from the country, and now there isn't a person in the house from the private secretary to the doorkeeper whose name and history I don't know from A to Z. The commissioner breathed an anxious sigh. I shall be very glad when tomorrow is over, he said. What are the final arrangements? There has been no change, sir, since we fixed things up the morning Sir Philip came over. He remains at forty-four all day tomorrow until half-past eight, goes over to the house at nine to move the reading of the bill, returns at eleven. I have given orders for the traffic to be diverted along the embankment between a quarter to nine and a quarter after, and the same at eleven, said the commissioner. Four closed carriages will drive from Downing Street to the house, so Philip will drive down in a car immediately afterwards. There was a rap at the door. The conversation took place in the commissioner's office, and a police officer entered. He bore a card in his hand, which he laid upon the table. Signor José de Silva, read the commissioner, the Spanish chief of police, he explained to the superintendent. Show him in, please. Signor de Silva, a lithe little man, with a pronounced nose and beard, greeted the Englishman with the exaggerated politeness that is peculiar to Spanish official circles. "'I am sorry to bring you over,' said the commissioner, after he had shaken hands with the visitor and had introduced him to Falmouth. "'We thought you might be able to help us in our search for Terry.' "'Lucky I was in the Paris,' said the Spaniard. "'Yes, I know Terry. 
and I am astounded to find him in such distinguished company. Do I know the four? His shoulders went up to his ears. Who knows? I know of them. There was a case at Malaga, you know. Terry is not a good criminal. I was astonished to learn that he had joined the band. By the way, said the chief, picking up a copy of the police notice that lay on his desk and running his eye over it. Your people omitted to say, although it really isn't of very great importance, what is Terry's trade? The Spanish policeman knitted his brow. Terry's trade? Let me remember. He thought for a moment. Terry's trade. I don't think I know. Yet I have an idea that it is something to do with rubber. His first crime was stealing rubber. But if you want to know for certain... The commissioner laughed. It really isn't all that important, he said lightly. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Four Just Men, Part 2 of 4, by Edgar Wallace. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music